The Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament by word count. And so we're bringing a journey to an end today, the longest book of the New Testament by word count. And we started the Gospel of Luke in 2019. So if my my math is correct, and it's usually not, uh, we started at the end of 2019. We've spent a few years in this book, um, starting in November of 2019 during the weeks of Advent, looking in those opening chapters of Luke 1 and 2, all those glorious birth of John the Baptist and Jesus stories. This is the 116th sermon now, getting us to the last four verses of the third gospel. It's always a great feeling to accomplish a vast Bible book together as a congregation. I, I'm always glad to see a finish line. You probably are too. We've gone through a long period of many months together. I do want to observe something that's also a particular personal delight for me. Um, in order to make that point, I just want to back up a bit in pastoral ministry. I began preaching weekly as a pastor in 2006 in Texas. That was 16 years ago. And I have begun and began at that point carrying out a personal resolution to preach through the whole New Testament. Now, there's been a lot of years of preaching that have unfolded across those uh, years and states. And then that goal continued even coming to Cosmos still in 2012, uh, serving as the preaching pastor. Truth, truthfully, a lot of Old Testament has been preached as well. But when you're in churches, like in Texas and in Kentucky, that have multiple services, you can get through a lot of Bible, even in a short period of time. Uh, and so I love that. And that's uh, meant something in particular to my preaching ministry here. The last book of the New Testament that I had not been able to complete is the Gospel of Luke. And so what that will mean for this morning is a personal goal uh, that over many years the Lord has allowed me to complete. And in the Lord's providence, I'm very happy to have that message be with you here in this place this morning on May 22nd, 2022. And when I look at the content of the passage, what a, what a description to meditate on as we close Luke's gospel, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a glorious truth to meditate on, to rejoice in. At the beginning of each month, we'd recite the Nicene Creed together, and you say these words with me. You say, he has ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. We say these words because it is what we believe and confess as Christians, the ascension of the Lord. What would we describe or define the ascension of Jesus to mean? The ascension of Jesus is his bodily departure from earth and bodily entrance into heaven. That, that is most succinctly what we mean by the ascension. It is his bodily departure from the earth and his bodily entrance into the heavenly places. The implications of this truth are profound. He enters the heavenly places to reign with all authority as the exalted king of kings and lord of lords. You should think of the ascension as the enthronement of the conquering king. The resurrection is his victory over death. He rose with physical immortality. The ascension of Christ confirms his reign as the Davidic king. I like the way one New Testament scholar put it. The resurrection tells us Jesus lives forever. And the ascension tells us Jesus reigns forever. So both the resurrection and the ascension matter. It speaks of an ongoing bodily reality of the Lord Jesus. The resurrection tells us he lives forever. The ascension tells us he reigns forever. So we want to eagerly confess 
both. And I'm afraid that as believers, it can be easy to underplay, to underestimate the ascension of Christ. We can rightly speak of his cross work and his victory and empty tomb. And rightly so. We want to gladly highlight those things in bold and exclamation points. Have you considered the fact, however, that the ascension is part of the news of the gospel? The reason I want to think about it this way is if the gospel proclaims what Jesus has accomplished, then not only do we proclaim his incarnation, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, we proclaim his ascension as king in all the earth. This is what he has accomplished. And if the good news is about Jesus, which it is, then we proclaim all that is true of the person and work of Christ, the bodily ascension being crucial to the message. The bodily ascension of Jesus was not immediately after the resurrection. This is why the book of Acts in chapter 1 helps us because Luke wrote that second volume giving us some clarity on Luke 24. There are not time breaks in Luke 24 that are so clear. What we find with Acts is that verses 50 and 51 in our passage this morning are 40 days after the resurrection. And you need Acts 1 to see that backward into Luke 24. So we're going to use Acts 1 just to reference that. It tells us in Acts uh, chapter 1 and in verse 3 that after 40 days of appearing to them with various proofs, he went to the Mount of Olives and ascended. So Acts 1 verse 3 is helpful with Luke 24. Um, the providence of the Lord is also something to rejoice in with this fact. We, re- we celebrated uh, Easter on April 17th this year. And 40 days uh, after Easter this year would be this coming week on Thursday, May the 26th. So I love that we are handling the ascension of the Lord in the week that would be 40 days after the resurrection. That just suggests we've been in Luke 24 a long time. This is the sixth message from this chapter. But um, how should we think about it? Three parts this morning in these four verses. In verse 50, the blessing from Jesus. What a scene this is to behold. And then in verse 51, the ascension of Jesus. Then lastly, the responses of his disciples. The blessing of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the responses of his disciples. The location is given first in verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Nothing about the Mount of Olives there. You heard me mention it from Acts 1. Well, what you need to know is that Bethany is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So when when Luke 24 tells us he led them as far out as Bethany and Acts 1 tells us he's ascended from the Mount of Olives, those are not two different things. That's the same area, same location. So going out as far as Bethany means they're on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And what he's doing is lifting his hands in this act, blessing them. Now he has spent weeks teaching He spent weeks instructing and answering their questions. He has spent time fellowshipping and eating with them in small groups and in large groups. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, one of his post-resurrection appearances was to more than 500 at a single time. Over these weeks then, they have climaxed to this point where he leads them to the Mount of Olives and he raises his hands to bless them. Them. 
Who does the them refer to? We're not given a specific number here, but in Acts 1, the company that goes to the room in Jerusalem to wait numbers approximately 120 persons. This includes not just the 11 disciples, but also Mary, Jesus' mother. It includes Jesus' brothers and sisters, and no doubt many others besides. When Jesus leads them out as far as Bethany and lifts his hands to bless them, this is not some small, private, or individual, or someone had to imply later on what happened. Very public, at a familiar place, a climax now of his post-resurrection earthly encounters, lifts his hands. Charles Spurgeon says, oh, what blessings that thousands received from those dear hands. Those hands, Spurgeon says, had multiplied the loaves and fish and fed the hungry thousands. Those hands had touched the blind and opened their eyes. Those hands had been laid upon the leper and was made whole. Those hands touched the bed where the dead young man lay and he had been made to live again. Those blessed hands. When we reflect on what the hands of Christ had accomplished in the ministry on earth, now these lifted hands to bless. An important figure blessing others in his midst is something very Old Testament as well. Maybe your mind could think of Jacob in Genesis 49. Jacob is nearing death. And Jacob gathers around his children, and in Genesis 49, 28, he blessed them before he was gathered to his people in death. Maybe you could think of Moses. Before the death of Moses, in Moses' uh, scene of Deuteronomy 33, he blessed the people of Israel before his death. Jesus' blessing is not given before his death. This is different from Jacob. This is different from Moses. Jesus has died and risen. Jesus' blessing is offered as the death-defeating Savior and Redeemer. He is greater than Jacob, greater than Moses. And so how much more a blessing pronounced by Christ would be greater than any offered in Genesis or Deuteronomy? Raising hands is a specific detail. It doesn't just tell us he blessed them, but he lifted up his hands to bless them. Think not only of Jacob and Moses, I want you to think of the priests of Israel. In the Old Testament, raising hands was very much a priestly thing to do for blessing. In the Old Testament, the priests would bless with uplifted hands like in Leviticus 9. In Leviticus 9.22, Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, it says he lifted up his hands toward the people and he blessed them. The most famous blessing of the priests is Aaron's blessing of number 6. In number 6.23, God says to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, and you say, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Oh, the power of those words in Jesus He lifts his hands and he blesses his people. There's something so priestly about this. And how fitting. He's worked all the priests out of a job. He has 
finished the work of atonement. He is the high priest we need going to enter the heavenly places. So what does he do as our perfect priest? He lifts his hands and he blesses his people as he ascends. He is the everlasting high priest for the people of God. Ascending to the heavenly holy of holies. Oh, friends, the ascension is a priestly scene. He's not even at the temple. And that's surprising when you remember that people go to the temple to interact with those priests and to receive their priestly blessings. Jesus isn't at the temple. He's fulfilled the temple. His work is done. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and not for much longer. He has proclaimed it is finished in John 19.30 from the cross. And he is the perfect mediating priest we need. And his work is not tied to the temple. He is the true temple. He's made the satisfactory offering. So when he appeared to the group of disciples in Luke 24 for the first time as a group, he says to them, peace to you. And I just wonder if the words of Aaron's blessing in number six are upon the lips of Jesus where he, pro- he pronounces peace remaining with those disciples. That his words right after his resurrection and his words right before his ascension are blessing words of peace that the favor of God and the power of God and the face of God's countenance would rest upon his dear people and friends. When he blessed them, while he blessed them in verse 51, here it is. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Such a succinct phrase. A momentous event. You wouldn't have enough words to describe the momentous event. These get at the core of what we want to say. He parted bodily from them. It does not mean that Christ, according to his divine nature, just as the Father and the Spirit, fully sharing the divine essence, aren't always with the disciples. Even Christ himself said, I am with you to the very end of the age. But it was not a promise that had to be kept according to his human nature, according to his risen bodily state. So he parts from them bodily and was carried up into heaven. This answers the question, what happened to the risen Jesus? So 2,000 years ago, the tomb is empty. He appears to his disciples. The vision and message of the angels to the women has indeed come true. He's risen from the dead. For 40 days, he appears to them, teaches, instructs, and fellowships with them. But if we were to ask what happened to the risen Jesus, the answer is in Luke 24. He has ascended bodily. There's such a bodily emphasis in the ministry of Jesus. He was born bodily. He lived bodily. He obeyed bodily. He suffered bodily. He died bodily, rose bodily, ascended bodily, reigns bodily, returning bodily. There is a physical, glorious aspect to the bodily work of Jesus. With Jesus parting from them, something very Old Testament about this as well. Maybe your minds could think of Enoch in Genesis 5, who was taken prior to death. Or Elijah in 2 Kings 2, taken prior to death. Jesus is not taken prior to death. Just as his blessing was offered after his victory over death, so is his ascension. Neither Enoch nor Elijah are taken in glorified physical states with everlasting immortality embodied. But Jesus, for Jesus, it is the case. 
His body is imperishable and glorified. So he ascends from the Mount of Olives in Luke 24. He parted from them. He blessed them. This is no private event. And I think this is really helpful. That little detail. The disciples didn't wake up one morning and say, wait a second, where is he? Has anyone seen him? Maybe he's traveling the globe and we just don't expect to see him again. No, the teaching about the ascension wasn't from some individual trying to explain away what happened to the risen Jesus. But rather in front of a drove of people, the mighty Christ blesses and ascends before them. The 11 disciples, Jesus' siblings and mother, and the other groups following Jesus, they would have seen this take place. Oh, what power and wonder and open mouths in the midst of those gathered to see the parting and rising of Christ. What if we didn't have Luke 24 or Acts 1? Would we be able to understand that an ascension had happened? I think the answer must be yes. In John chapter 16, 28, Jesus said, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. In John 16, 7, Jesus says, it's to your advantage I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. So John has weighed in there in John's gospel. And even though John doesn't include a narrative of the ascension, it is foreshadowed by the very words of Jesus. But not just John's gospel. Think of Paul. Paul weighs in in Romans 8.34. He says Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Well, what must that imply? But a reigning and ascending to the right hand of the Father. Paul says in Ephesians 1.20, Christ is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. In Philippians 2.9, therefore God has highly exalted him. Colossians 3.1, we are told to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says Jesus was taken up in glory. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews weighs in and says in chapter 1.3, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In Hebrews 9.24, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Oh, friends, we love that Luke 24 and Acts 1 narrates for us the ascension But even if the narratives weren't there, the other biblical writers have made clear what has happened to the risen Jesus. He has ascended to the right hand of God and he sits after finishing his work of atonement. He's our perfect mediator and intercessor and he has all authority in heaven and earth. The ascension of Jesus completes what the father's call to the son was in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. So how do we see Psalm 110 ultimately fulfilled in the work and person of Jesus? The ascension. The Lord reigning and subduing his enemies. Luke tells us Jesus was carried up into heaven. 
Verse 51 there, he was taken and parted, for, he parted from them and was taken up or carried up into heaven. Let's all avoid an error here. An error to avoid would be to think that if we left this earth, traveled up with some sort of technological apparatus, and we traveled far enough and long enough, we could find heaven. I don't think heaven is something that will be located by the best and most advanced telescopes or the most enduring technological advancements in space travel. Heaven is not something into space, but rather something beyond the dimensions with which we are familiar. When it tells us that he parted from them and was carried into heaven, there is, I think, at some point in our imagination, we are to envision some crossing into or movement past a threshold of what we can tell in the earthly creation. An arrival into something that is not part of what we see in the dimensions of this world. I like the way one scholar put it. The ascension is not just a departure. It is also an arrival. The ascension is not just a departure. It is also an arrival. He is entering into his glory. It is his enthronement. It is the capstone of his earthly work. The heavenly confirmation of all of his claims. It ensures his advocacy for his people. His perfect intercession for us. Hebrews 9.24, right? He appears even now in the presence of God on our behalf. Why has he risen and not only from the dead but also parted to ascend to the right hand of God? That he might be our advocate. Our perfect mediator. Christ has ascended on our behalf. In the heavenly places, then we have a perfect high priest, and his heart is love toward us. Not condemnation. He has appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. The the responses of the disciples end chapter 24. He doesn't, in other words, just narrate for us the ascension of Christ. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven, the end. We find out in verses 52 to 53, the disciples' response to this wonderful event. And the first response we want to note in verse 52 is a response of worship. And they worshiped him. I don't think there's a more fitting response, do you? They worshiped him. This is not a violation of the first commandment. We would want to be diligent Bible readers to understand that God is alone worthy of worship, alone worthy of exaltation and praise in all the earth. And all other pseudo-gods are but idols who are no gods at all. There's only the one living God who exists forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so they worshiped Christ, the Son of God, who is divine, truly human and divine. So this is no violation of the first commandment. To exalt and worship Jesus is honorable and right and biblical. Jesus is worthy of worship. In Revelation 5, we heard it earlier this morning. The many thousands around the throne say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive wisdom and might and honor and glory. He's worthy of that. To refuse that to Christ would be to imply an unworthiness to receive it. 
Well, we don't want to imply that. We want to eagerly state what the Bible states of Jesus, that he is worthy of worldwide adoration, honor, blessing, and glory. When you understand who Jesus is, you will see that he is to be worshipped. Your heart should delight in him and treasure him. Your soul was made to exult in and rejoice in Jesus. Every gain in this world is as nothing compared to him. Every bright and beautiful thing in the universe is but a reflection of his surpassing glory and splendor. Jesus parts from them and is carried up into heaven. What do they do? They're not indifferent to that. They know who he is. And they worshiped him. When Luke tells us this, it makes sense if we've been paying attention to the story and all that God's accomplished in Christ. We see here they worshiped him and we think, well, of course. What is more appropriate given who he is and what he has done that the people in his midst who are coming to realize and sense all that he is and has done that they have hearts of worship and praise for him. It tells us in verse 52, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Well, so they don't stay at the Mount of Olives. And there's a reason for this. Last week, we ended with verse 49. The very last statement in verse 49 says, these are Jesus's words, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That city was not Bethany, where he had led them on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. That city is Jerusalem. Stay in the city, he says. So while he has led them out to ascend, well, what are they going to do now that he's ascended? Well, they have to stay in Jerusalem. So that's where they go. They go in Jerusalem, to Jerusalem to obey the Lord. Luke is reporting their obedience. They have worshipped him. They return where he has told them to go. And they go with great joy. I love that phrase. Luke doesn't just tell you they went. He tells you how they went. They went with great joy. I can't imagine the weeks of emotions felt by those disciples. The, the, the sheer thrill and overwhelming sense of the risen Jesus they had known was crucified and feared now with their sorrow and grief they'd see no more. And now they've spent these weeks with him, learning from him, understanding more and more. He has opened their minds to understand the scriptures that Luke 24 tells us. So they go with great joy. They do not leave with sorrow. Not to say they will not treasure in their hearts the memories of their bodily encounters with and fellowship and ministry with Jesus. But this is different from the Emmaus disciples who walked to the village of Emmaus not knowing Jesus had risen from the dead and they went in their walk sad. That is not the case here. In Luke 24, in verse 52, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Yes, they had had a hard time processing the wonder of what had dawned into the world. Forty days later, they understand a lot more than they did. He's answered their questions and the moment of departure has come and they watch him ascend and they are not racked with grief. They are filled with great joy. The word joy does appear in Luke's gospel. Luke 
takes us through various scenes where joy is on display. But there is one place in Luke's gospel where great joy is talked about, besides Luke 24. And it's near the beginning of the book. It's in the opening unit. Luke 1 and 2 is the opening unit of the gospel. And it's all about the promised son and birth of Jesus. And in Luke 2, 11, 10 and 11, an angel appears to shepherds out in a field. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. The angel announces this. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Great joy in Luke 2, verse 10 and 11. And the only other place in Luke's gospel where great joy is emphasized is here at the end. This seems literarily significant. That in the opening and closing units of the gospel, there's an emphasis on great joy, the birth of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. How fitting. There are occasions of great joy for those who know what's happening. The birth of Jesus was reason for great joy. Why? He was the promised Savior, the victorious seed of the woman, the longed-for prophet like Moses, the true and greater David, the one who would bring the sacrifice to end all sacrifices and as the suffering servant bear our sins on the cross. So the birth of Jesus, the angel said, I have good news of great joy for you, for all people. The ascension of Jesus is reason for great joy. Why? Because the promises have been kept. That Jesus has been born and he has lived without sin. And he died bearing our iniquities. And he rose on the third day in victory and he has ascended into glory. They go with great joy back to Jerusalem. The story of Luke, this gospel, is the story of good news, of great joy that will be for all people. That's what we've been studying since 2019 in the third gospel here. I wonder if the good news about Jesus would evoke great joy in you. Not just like a glimmer of interest and curiosity, but I'm talking about a rejoicing in Christ, a delighting in the depths of your soul because you understand from birth to ascension what Jesus has come to do and who he is. I think we need to hold together those two responses in verse 52. They worshiped him. And they had great joy, praise and joy, or if you like, reverence and rejoicing together. They revere Christ, worship him. They rejoice in Christ. They have great joy. Oh, may it be so for us. May it be so for every one of us that young and old, men and women, new believer, believer for a long time. That you would have great joy and a heart of worship of Christ Jesus Knowing who he is. Now, where did they go when they went back to Jerusalem? The last verse tells us in verse 53, they were continually in the temple blessing God. That's an important location in the history of God's people. Solomon built a temple. When the Babylonians destroyed it, it was rebuilt. In the days of the Roman Empire, Herod the Great expanded it. The the temple in Jerusalem was a vast and wondrous place. Jesus went there during the times of feasting. Even when he was 12 years old, Luke 2 tells us of Jesus in the temple, answering questions and not only asking those around him. They are in the temple here in verse 53, and I don't think that's because they didn't understand what the cross accomplished. 
I don't think that's because they were trying to rewind redemptive history. I think they know that at the temple is the place where people gather to worship and bring offerings and hear teaching and bless God. And they want to be in Jerusalem, what would be a vast mission field. And they would be found even on the seventh day in the synagogues, teaching and proclaiming. And it's not because they don't know who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. They're going to the people who need to know him. And one of the most important gathering places in the promised land, if not the most important city alone, but also the place, the temple, stands out as a logical, practical place to go. They go there. And they don't just go there occasionally. They go there continually. And I think this is quite bold of them. Weeks earlier, they were in a room with the doors locked in fear of the Jews. I just want you to notice how different this is. Luke 24, 53, they're continually in the temple. This is where the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians had gathered to oppose Jesus. To maliciously question him and seek to entrap him. And they know the faces of these disciples, but there's no hiding this. They are public about their love for Christ. In fact, they're continually in the temple blessing God. Blessing God is also an Old Testament idea. It means the language of praise. Blessing God here is another way of talking about praising God. When Revelation 5 says, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive all blessing and honor and glory and power, that's language of praise. Blessing and worship is the same idea here. It's not that they're giving something to God he lacks. No, they're praising God for what he has done. They're worshiping Christ there at the Mount of Olives. They're in the temple blessing and praising God for what he's accomplished. And they are bold and publicly appearing with the joy of Christ in their hearts. With great joy, they went to Jerusalem. Continually in the temple. Praise on their tongue. Now, are they doing this because everything circumstantially is going to go well for them? No. Think about the second work of Luke's pen. In the book of Acts, Jesus has tried to prepare them in Luke that in Acts, they're going to be opposed and reviled. They'll be be insulted and arrested. They'll be dragged before governors and kings. Many of them will suffer. Many of them will be martyred. They have joy in Jesus and praise on their tongue, but it is not because things ahead will be easy. It's because Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. My friend, I, I want you to just think for a moment in your present, all the things going around, the upheavals of life that take place, health-wise, financially, culturally and nationally, globally, all the things that we, not, that we do not know that are in the future. We don't follow Christ because all the circumstances are to the liking and preference of God's image bearers. We look to Christ and follow him because he is enthroned over heaven and earth. These disciples can follow Jesus not because there's not suffering in their path, Not because there's not martyrdom in the case of some. They will follow Jesus because of who Jesus is. The tomb is empty. And the throne in heaven has at the right hand the ascended Jesus. That's why they follow him. 
They go back to Jerusalem with great joy because Jesus is Lord. And friend, there's such a profound application of that large idea in all of our lives. Because we might think of many circumstances that arise in our lives to cause us to wonder or question, well, you know, here I am on a path following Jesus, and now I'm facing this difficulty, this challenge, this trial. I wouldn't have seen this coming. In fact, I might have imagined if I were worshiping and praising Jesus, this wouldn't be down the path at all for me. And yet being one, like all of us are, who cannot control the circumstances around us, we are following Jesus because of what we confess true of him. Follow Jesus because he is Lord. You can follow Jesus with great joy beyond circumstances. You can follow Jesus with praise and worship on your lips beyond circumstances. Because while other things change, Jesus as Lord will not change. Here at the end of Luke's gospel, there are multiple things that connect it to the opening unit of the book. Luke 1 and 2. And we've thought about a few of them, right? We thought about how great joy connects us to those shepherds in Luke 2. I even mentioned the idea of uh, blessing from Jesus here in Luke 24. He blessed them. I should tie this as well to Simeon in Luke 2. Jesus, or Simeon, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 2, verse 28, blessed God because of the birth of Jesus. And here at the end of Luke 24, the disciples are blessing God because of Jesus. I want you to consider the city. The city that Luke opens with and the city that Luke ends with. Same city. Jerusalem. The opening scene of Luke's gospel is in Jerusalem. And where the disciples, where do they return at the end of Luke 24? They go back to Jerusalem with great joy. The opening scene of Luke is not only in Jerusalem. It's also at the temple. That's fascinating. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, is in the temple in Jerusalem. And where are the disciples at the close of Luke? They're in the temple continually, blessing God. Not only is the city of Jerusalem and the temple a way of looping the gospel together, priestly work. Priestly work in Luke 1. Who is John the Baptist's father, Zechariah? He's our priest. That's what he's doing in the temple. He's offering incense. He's engaged in priestly work. And at the end of Luke 24, with upraised hands, like a great high priest, Jesus blesses his disciples. I think these many examples illustrate a very careful and artful arrangement and end of Luke's account of the ministry of Jesus. The last action Luke reports isn't something Jesus did, though. He ascended in verse 51. Luke really wants you to know those responses. The last language of, the final language of Luke 24 is about what those disciples did. And the reason I think that's instructive and not just interesting is because it could invite us by implication to ask, how am I going to respond given that Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into the heavenly places? How am I going to respond? Will I respond like these disciples? So if the disciples respond that way, does that resonate with me at all? Or do I look at their response and think, ah, I just don't get it. I don't really see what they see. I don't believe what they believe. I don't understand what they understand. I think their responses in verses 52 and 53 imply the question for us, are we going to respond like these? Is the gospel going to lead us into worship and joy? 
And will our hearts proclaim praise from our lips to God for his work of redemption? Will we walk unashamed and boldly for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world? Are we going to join the praise of the psalmist in Psalm 103 who says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. When we think of a psalm like that, it's, Yes, Lord, yes. Oh, may that be true for me. The risen Jesus and the ascended Jesus is our advocate, intercessor, mediator, king, Lord of heaven and earth. His ascension answers the question of Psalm 24. Psalm 24, 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Jesus. Jesus shall ascend. He shall ascend the hill of the Lord. And he shall come to the presence of God on our behalf. The ascension of Christ is the response to the command in Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The ascension answers the question in Psalm 24, 8. Who is the King of glory? It is Jesus. It is Jesus, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Because Jesus reigns, we confess this and follow him. Because he reigns, there's help for the weary, forgiveness for the repentant, Hope for the despairing, reconciliation for the wayward, and strength for the weak. Friend, come to the King of glory. Trust Him, worship Him, find your joy in Him. His words are true. His promises are sure. And His reign will never end.